It's your favorite time of the morning. The Forum at 8. Favorite time of the morning on AM Live. From school rugby to the treatment of our domestic workers to snide remarks in public places to social media postings, we can no longer afford to sit back and accept what is in fact our status quo. And when South Africa was affectionately called the Rainbow Nation, I was actually embarking on a journalism career. And I didn't think that more than two decades later, when I was practicing the profession, I'd realize how much we've forgotten that hard work is required by each of us every day when it comes to acceptance, forgiveness, and the general respect for our fellow citizens. But South Africa does not stand alone in the issue of racism. The hashtag Black Lives Matter was created three years ago after Trayvon Martin's murderer, George Zimmerman, was acquitted for his crime. And then the dead 17-year-old Trayvon was posthumously placed on trial for his own murder. Hashtag Black Lives Matter is a call to action and a response to the anti-black racism that permeates American society. So our discussion today is why these two democratic nations are still plagued by the age-old social ill, a sickness, a scourge that we commonly call racism. In a short while, we'll be speaking to Opal Tometi. She's the executive director for the Black Alliance for Just Immigration. That's a national organization that educates and advocates to further immigration rights and racial injustice. Opal is also the co-founder of the hashtag Black Lives Matter. That's the political project that was launched in the wake of the murder of Trayvon Martin in order to combat implicit bias and anti-black racism. Uh, we're going to get uh, Opal on the line in a short while, but also discuss uh, joining our discuss- uh, discussion this morning is someone who suddenly makes me stop and take note when she speaks. That's Lebo Hong Peko, a socio-economic commentator and managing director of a development con- a consultancy called Four Rivers Trading. Uh, Lebo Hong, uh, good morning. Thank you for sacrificing your, your downtime to talk to us this morning. Add that my other hashtag is also a senior research fellow at the Trade Collective, which is a, a think tank that deals with the political economy. Fantastic. Thanks, uh, mm. Leberhang. Well, we'd like to hear from our listeners throughout the forum via Twitter, SMS, Facebook. You can call us. So here are those details. Tweet us at, uh, at AM Live on SAFM. You can call us on 0891-104-208. You can also SMS us on 34701. Those SMS will cost one rand per SMS. Uh, Lebahang, while we uh, get uh, Opal on the line, I'd like to mm. start with you. Uh, we go back to 94. Was was a Rainbow Nation just a pipe dream for the likes of Desmond Tutu, Madiba, your own dad? Um, or were we all just caught up in the euphoria of 1994? Well, I'd like to take it more globally. I think that the one thing, that that's a good starting point. The one thing is that we need to understand that racism is is a result of um, individual attitudes, social values, and institutional practices. Colonialism was actually, and, and including apartheid colonialism, was actually the nexus of an economic project which used race as an ongoing justification 
for 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 its for its endeavors. So it used the notion of othering people that that a certain group of people or group of groups of people were only good for um, hard labor, were only useful for, um, for for being the servants to the project of capitalism, racist apartheid capitalism or colonial capitalism. And it is not dissimilar to the very same kind of um, uh, pathology which, which which gave rise to the uh, transatlantic so-called uh, slave trade, which is mm. really human trafficking for 300 years. So fast forward to 1994, and we have the nexus of all of this actually being institutionalized for years. Structural racism is one of the biggest difficulties and the biggest challenges that we are facing in this country and in many countries, and perhaps the U.S., although Opal can say more about that. Because what it does is that even though um, a, 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 a system, a company, a government, a state, an institution may no longer explicitly um, espouse racist ideologies or race based ideologies, it then makes it, the structure is, makes it so simple for racism to dwell and for it to hide and for it to continue because it is embedded in the DNA and in the fiber mm-hmm. of an institution or a system. And that is why we have the situation that we have in South Africa today. That is why we have African students saying that they cannot afford fees. Uh, children who should have been, who are supposedly born free and who should have no institutional or even social social memory of apartheid are still experiencing in their day-to-day life and their ability to access basic resources such as education. We're still seeing it in unemployment statistics. The people who are and are not able to access employment um, are typically black people, um, and, and the highest levels of unemployment are also among African women in this country. So it is systemic, it is subtle. Racism is a, a subtle and agile ideology. It hides, it metamorphoses, it is a chameleon, and it is able to embed itself in different social, economic, even religious, political settings based on the particular context or the zeitgeist of the day. So racism in South Africa might manifest differently to racism in Kenya or racism in India or racism in the U.S. or racism in in Brazil, for example. Uh, Lebohang, you've touched on a whole range of issues that I'm hoping that we'll get to unpack in the next 40 minutes or so. But let's uh, welcome at this point uh, Opal uh, Tometi. I hope I'm getting the surname right. Opal is the executive director for the Black Alliance for Just Immigration. She's also the co-founder of the hashtag Black Lives Matter program. Opal is currently visiting South Africa. She joins us from Pretoria. Opal, good morning and welcome to our country. Well, thank you so much. I'm really happy to join you all today, and I'm excited to be here in South Africa. Thank you very much. Firstly, how's your trip been going in terms of uh, uh, the kind of uh, welcoming you've been getting? But coming from the Black Lives Matter campaign, have you observed anything differently here in South Africa? Yeah, so my time here has actually been quite enjoyable. I've been able to experience, you know, everyday people in everyday types of encounters from um, working class people to folks who are in different types of jobs and different sectors and folks who are who are steeped in the movement here. And there are a lot of things and a lot of struggles that are, are being waged here. And um, so it's been exciting to connect with folks from different um, walks of life. And my experience here, I'll, I'll be quite honest, one, on my first day here, I encountered um, a white South African and um, had a really tense exchange with them because 
they began to, you know, basically yell and berate myself and my my cousin um, for parking in a specific parking spot that was designated for women or moms and and tots. And mm-hmm. actually, my my cousin is pregnant, and we had a tot in the back seat. And this person proceeded to berate us, thinking that that was not our our, our right to, to to occupy that space. And so, mm-hmm. um, from day one, I actually witnessed some intense hostility and discrimination, and, and just outright racism that I imagine some of my black peers in in South Africa are experiencing. Um, you know, on their everyday lives, be it in more subtle terms or very overtly in the, in, the, in my case. And mm. so it was, it was um, really disappointing to see that and experience that on the first day of, of being here in Pretoria. Um, however, I've had some other really notable, beautiful moments and a lot of really beautiful exchanges with, um, you know, other people mm. in South Africa. And so I think that there's a lot to learn and a lot to um, be shared amongst activists and, and people of conscience in the United States as well as those right here in South Africa. Mm. Uh, Opal, mm. just and I'm, and I'm saddened by your, by your experience uh, on the very first day of your visit to our country, but how did you respond to that incident? You know, in that incident, you know, we basically just let him know that it was our right to be in that spot. He, con- he continued to berate us and yell and didn't want to... Um, move from his position. I think he was just arrogant and had an ego and he was a white older man and, and maybe stuck in his ways. But, you know, we we stood our ground, <laughs> we parked in our mm. spot and we went our way. And I imagine that's what many people have to do um, in their everyday lives where they stand their ground and they continue about their business because they're looking to have a pleasant time. You know, it was, it was just about the Christmas time. We're looking to go shopping and enjoy our family. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, you have things to do. You have things to do, and so you keep it moving. However, you know, as somebody who's involved in in organizing my community for justice and fighting against overt racism and the racism that we experience at the structural level, um, it was just a, it was a telling time. It was a telling experience for me in that the work is far from over, you know, right here in South Africa, but, of course, it, it really invigorates me to go back home and continue um, with our struggles because I know that we're they are connected. Mm-hmm. Well, Opal, we've got a lot more to, to ask you uh, in the uh, next 45 minutes or so. But Lebohang, just listening to Opal's uh, uh, experience on day one here in South Africa, it just goes back mm. to what you mentioned a short while ago about racism being institutionalized, being part of one's fiber, being part of one's DNA. How then do we try to change a mindset, decades-old mindset, uh, you know, because it's very emotional, it's very frustrating, uh, particularly the incident that she was referring to. Yeah, so decades and even centuries. Hey, Chris. Mm. So, I mean, it's, it's really going back to understanding what racism is. And racism is really, it's a system of social inequality that thrives on different entitlements, many of them unearned, and different privileges, but specifically and in particular white privilege. It is also a system that enables or disables the participation, the full participation and full humanity and full citizenship of people of color, African people, black people across the diaspora, um, by assuming that they are different, they are other, by diminishing their humanity, such as the incident that um, Opal has narrated, um, and by also um, p- putting 
particular characteristics or pathologies and stereotypes to justify particular behavior. So, for example, black people are lazy, in inverted commas. Black women are promiscuous, in inverted commas. Um, black, black men are inherently violent, in inverted commas. And until we are able to undo those sorts of um, casual but institutionalized forms of racism, it's not going to be, it's not going to be simple, also because these sorts of racisms feed into the institutions, they feed into labor markets, they feed into the fact that we are typically on the low end of global value chains in production and manufacturing, African people and black people and people of color, including in Asia, Latin America, and in North America, are typically then characterized as unable or unable to enter into structures of higher skill, higher power. So until we... um, is a concerted effort and a concerted willingness by those with power to feed that power, to admit that power, to give away and to see some of the privilege that comes with that power, which is only based on race. It's going to be incredibly difficult to undo and mm. to dismantle. Well, at 20 minutes past eight, you've heard our guest this morning. We'd like to hear from you now. Please give us a call on 89 You can also SMS us on 34701. Those SMSs will cost you one rand. I want to read one or two SMSs at this stage. Um, an unsigned message says race relations in South Africa are vastly better than they were pre-1994. Neliswa Simoku writes in and says... That's what happens when one sugarcoats crucial issues that need firm decisions. I'm lucky to be brought up in a home where I was taught there is one race, the human race. Um, Another unsigned um, message says, Steve Biko was right when he said, black man, you're on your own. Matlatsi writes in and says, don't forget to mention the killing between the uh, Hutus and the Tutsis and Boko Haram on your program. Um, And and, and tag blacks, remove your blinkers. So a lot of people responding to our program this morning. We've got a few callers on the line, Opal and Lebohang. I'd like to go to our first caller this morning. It's Mike in Newlands. Good morning, Mike. To the, uh, good morning. Good morning to the panel. I um, just want to make an observation, if I may. This is not in here. I'm any, kind of an expert mm. in, but um, I'm enjoying the debate immensely. Um, I've uh, been to America many times. I have a lot of friends and relations and brothers. I've lived there. And I have to say, in America, I find very, very little racism. I can only comment again my, my brother's workplace, the people I, I, I socialize with. And, and in fact, if you look at it, the majority of the Americans are white and they vote in a black president, not on, on race, but on the fact that they believed he was the right man for the job. So I, I struggle with the, you know, rubbishing America, well, probably wrong word, with being hard on Americans. Generally, I think they get on very well. Thank you very much. And in terms of South Africa, well, I think that unfortunately race here, we seem, to, I think we get along very, pretty well. But what happens is we get closer to election time. We have the race card being played. Our president plays it on a regular basis. And he's already made it clear in a speech he made in PE just recently, the race card is going to be played quite strongly next year. And by that, he's talking about the Black Sash and the end conscription campaign. These are all anti-apartheid organizations. By the way, I was in the end conscription campaign. And I really don't particularly want to talk about what I did, I did do or didn't do. I fought the battle against apartheid, and it's done and dusted. I want to look forward. But unfortunately, our politicians are going to continually drag apartheid up. And I think that's what separates South Africans. I think, by and large, this, I know I'm generalizing terribly, 
that by and large in business and in people I socialize with, we really get on, seem to get on very, very well. Mm-hmm. Thank you very much, uh, Mike, in Newlands. Uh, before I get you to respond, both of you, Opal and Lebohang, let's hear from Mark in Cape Town. Good morning, Mark. Good morning. Look, I think we all have to acknowledge that racism exists all over the world. Uh, but yeah, like the previous caller, I, I want to say that I don't think it's as endemic and entrenched as is made out. You know, America, as your caller said, uh, a, a white majority country voted in a, a black president. Uh, even those that were ideologically opposed to Obama, there was a tremendous sense of pride that a black president had been elected. And those that are politically made out to be the racist, which is the Republican Party, currently have three of their top four uh, candidates for president are, are, are not white. You know, Ben Carson, uh, the famous neurosurgeon, uh, black man, Ted Cruz, who's Latin, uh, Latin American background, and, and Rubio, and the fourth con- contender is the clown, Donald Trump. <laughs> so, yeah, it has, racism exists, but it's not e- endemic. And I just want to talk a little bit about the basis of racism in the 20th century. By the way, slavery has not been a black-on-white thing through the centuries. The word slave came from Slav, which were Eastern Europeans, who were also what we would call white-skinned. And slavery has existed for for thousands of years. It wasn't particularly a black-on-white thing, although for hundreds of years it certainly became that. And it was a terrible, terrible evil. But the racism of the 20th century was ideologically driven by Darwinism, the belief that man, we came from these random processes over millions of years and and certain so-called races were more uh, evolved than other races. These were the views of the Europeans and the whole uh, uh, struggle for Africa, the, the, um, the rush for Africa. Guys like Cecil John Rhodes, mm, G.K. Mm. Chesterton, called him that he was practicing the dregs of, of Darwinism, uh, the German nation. In okay, the, Mark, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm going to have to interrupt your, your lesson. By, by I'm going to have to interrupt your lesson in history, Mark, because we are uh, rushing for time. We need to hear from Kutso in Mtata at this time. Good morning, Kutso. Good morning. Thank you for giving me the podium. What's on your um, mind? First and foremost, the blacks are not lazy people. That is completely wrong. Over 50 million blacks have been taken to the Caribbean. All right, Kutso, we're going to put you on hold while you switch off your radio. I'm going to get Opal and Lebohang to respond to our two earlier callers, Mike in Newlands, uh, Mark in Cape Town, both echoing the sentiment that... A white majority in the United States voted in a black president. But here in South Africa, the race card always gets pulled out when it's time to go to the polls. Uh, Let's start with you, Opal. Uh, Does a white majority voting in a black president mean all is well at home? Unfortunately, you know, majority and and really people of color, the majority, um, pulling their power to elect President Obama does not actually equate with justice. Um, what it does equate with is that people were able to cast their vote in opposition to what we were experiencing over over many generations um, and, and really coming off the heels of a president like George Bush. And so folks were, were really voting in opposition to that. And what they were also hoping to do with a president like President Obama was to really usher in an era that can be truly that of one that a multiracial constituent um, 
can have some justice. However, what we've quickly realized is that there is a structure in place, there are systems in place, and those systems have been informed by generations of racism, generations of inequality, and it's hard, it's incredibly difficult for one person or even, you know, a, maybe a, a small body of elected mm-hmm. officials, progressive as they might be, to overturn generations of, of injustice, of embedded systematic inequality. And that's what we're experiencing now. And that is why every 28 hours you can have an unarmed black person, you know, a, a young girl, a woman, a boy, a man, be murdered in the United States with impunity by mm-hmm. a vigilante, by a police officer, by a security guard. These things don't happen overnight. And that's why we're having the types of uprisings and the robust social movement that we're experiencing in the U.S. today because folks are, are fed up. We're not living in a post-racial era. We have experienced and we've, we're witnessing the highest unemployment rates in the black community in the U.S. Mm-hmm. We're experiencing incarceration that's extremely disproportionate with our numbers in the U.S. We make up 14% of the population, yet we're almost half of the incarcerated population. And we have to deal with the effects. This is, this is the experience of, of black life in the U.S. We are systematically devalued and seen as disposable. And so we are grappling with that reality, and that is the result of racism. Hmm. Opal, I, I, later on in the program, I, I, you know, Americans pride themselves on the lessons of Lincoln and the like. But hundreds of years later, we're still dealing with these kind of issues that you've just mes- uh, mentioned. I'd like you to consider that, uh, you know, before when, when we come back after the news. But uh, Lebohang, I'd like you to at this point very quickly address those two callers that we had, particularly sure. when it comes to, um, you know, th- how our leaders, how our politicians, conduct themselves as we uh, you know go into an election year well actually I'd like to take it to a different notch I think the one thing is that the, they, they both uh, exemplify another kind of race-based violence which is the, the violence of erasure or denialism um, and the, the tip one of the typical um, uses is to use the race card that be if somebody has a race card I'd really like them to send me one or SMS <laughs> me one because I am exhausted of, of hearing yes. about this card that black people wave around as though we are asking for a free pass when we're actually experiencing difficult and diminished um, social realities. Um, and this is also part of trying to then erase experiences. One person's holiday in America does not in any way, as Opal articulated, and, and one person's experience of life in South Africa does not in any way act as a proxy for the reality of almost 50 million black people. Uh, and I think that, that is exact, that's another troubling facet of racism, the one that denies and the one that erases the, real, the lived and tangible experiences of African people and black people abroad. And this also feeds into the problematic of post-racialism, which doesn't exist because, as I mentioned earlier, mm. racism is an ongoing di- phenomenon which is dynamic and it is not static, it is not standing still. It doesn't stop in 1994. Let's go to Billy in Madras. Good morning, Billy. Good morning, everybody. Um, I'm hearing the race story again and slavery. People must realize if you're a citizen of South Africa or England or Australia, a Commonwealth country, and you have a birth certificate, even in America, and you have a constitution, 
you have the right to vote, a benefit privilege, and you are actually a slave because your birth certificates are being pledged for monetary values and loaned out. You are loaned out as a citizen to the IMF or the World Bank. And the slave trade was originally not a white thing. It was run by the Jews. The transatlantic slave trade was owned by the Jews with white faces in the firing line to take the blame. The race card, we need to get over this um, globally. I've experienced it in my own family in, in England. My father was English, my mother was Spanish. So there was a bit of tension when they got married. That was uh, in England in the 60s. So I'm familiar with racism to, to a very mild degree. I've been here since 68, so I've also lived through the apartheid era, which, which was uh, obviously race-based. Race but people need to realize that if you have a reserve bank, which is Marxist in nature, printing money owned by international Jews and Freemasons with a Marxist bias, lending it out to the major banks, commercial banks lending it to us at interest, when actually Treasury should be printing the money interest-free, we are then all slaves because we're enslaved by interest on money that's printed out of nothing. Mm. Billy in Madran, thank you very much for your insight. KGM in Cape Town, good morning. Good morning and good morning to your, to your guests and the listeners. Uh, look, my take is this. Um, we, we, we can talk as much as we like about uh, racism and, and its origin and, and I guess we will keep on pleasing the beneficiaries uh, in articulating ourselves without dealing with the core of racism. And the core of racism is the system. Look, whether you're in, in South Africa or Africa or you in, in, in the diaspora, black people were developed, black people are trained to submit to racism. Now, and this is done systematically. What I would like your, your guests to look at is how we as Africans, we as black people, how we, we are so patriotically blind in supporting the structure of racism, and secondly, how we sustain the beneficiaries and the beneficiation of racism against each other as black people. I mean, if you, if you are to listen to us discuss or debate racism, if, if there's any one of us giving us light in terms of the understanding, we are the first to, to defend racism and the first to even exonerate the perpetrators. I mean, in the question of South Africa, lastly, um, we, we were I mean, humiliating and, and praising politicians who are the worst supporters of racism, uh, the likes of, of Nelson Mandela and the like, who, who clearly... Um, believed in being misled and, and claiming that, the, that we are free, if you are to mention something like that, mm. even in the United States, I mean, if you listen to people who clearly articulate how deep-rooted racism is, black people themselves, African themselves, are All the right. ones... Thank you, KGM. Unfortunately, because it's such a, an emotive topic, I'm going to ask you to please reduce your comments to at least 30 seconds so we can get as much uh, participation from our listeners as possible. Um, Sebastian in Cape Town would like to respond to our earlier caller. That was Billy in Midran. Good morning, Sebastian. Yes, good morning to you and your listeners. I'd like to protest Billy's constant propagation of anti-Semitism on the airways. He may be somewhat correct about the role of reserve banks 
in the world, but there's not a Jewish or Freemason cons- uh, conspiracy behind this. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jews are not an influential group uh, as a whole throughout the world in terms of power wielding. And it's high time that uh, whenever he comes on, if he goes into this anti-Semitism, which is what he does, create a uh, sort of saying that the Jews were behind the slave trade, which is absolute. There may have been some Jews involved at some times in slave trading, along with everyone else in the world, but Jews were not behind the slave trading and they're not behind the reserve banks. And it's high time that uh, uh, the con- uh, something was be done about this Billy coming on and propagating this anti-Semitic rubbish on air. All right, uh, Sebastian, thanks for your time. Uh, Makala in Durban, good morning, and please make it quick. Okay, oppression of the non-European has been started hundreds or thousands of years ago. Oppression against the American still persists against the black people in spite of the fact that the black population, the African population constitute only 14% of the population. If you go to the jail, you'll find that almost... 70% 70% of the people in jail, I'm sorry, 55% of the people in jail are black Africans. You find that they are the most oppressed in that country. Besides that, the British, who claim to be very democratic, they Mr. Motala in Durban, thank you very much for your insight. Uh, let's take this uh, discussion back to our guests who've been patiently listening on the line, uh, Opal and uh, Lebohang. Uh, Lebohang, I'd like to uh, start with you uh, this time. Uh, you know, KGM in Cape Town uh, echoes the same sentiment that you do in terms of the structure of racism. Racism, you know, uh, in, in conversation with you, you've said time and time again, racism is not only about the outward manifestation manifestation of discrimination. It is also structural. How do we then turn this around following generations of racism and inequality? Lebohang? Hello, can Hi. you hear me? Yes, yes, we can. They ask me the same question in a different way, Kwan, <laughs> and I, I still my answer will remain the same. But I will add this. I think it's very important to also note that racism, sexism, and class oppression have always operated in concert, um, and that there's a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a tendency to 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 to, 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 to ignore that, and we need to view those as three triple oppressions. And I think that the other thing that's quite important when you, you know, in terms of how to characterize it, and I think that's probably what's quite important right now, is that the, the, the racism has, has, has different generations. So, for example, since the, during the 90s or probably since over the past 30 years with the so-called New Old World Order, the Washington Consensus, um, and the era of globalization, and as you know, that the, the, the political economy is my primary mm. um, interest area and, and, and international trade, the, 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 the world economy is reflected as a so-called global village. This is very problematic because modern means of, of communication have played an important role in then externalizing and internationalizing very narrow values. So we have a homogeneity, a false homogeneity that is then forced on our collective imaginations. The notion that we are all the same, which is very problematic. The notion that we are all we are all equivalents of each other. And this is played out in the in popular media, popular narratives. So there's big brother everywhere. 
there's you know, desperate housewives of just about any city in the world now. And there's this false equivalency. That means that even in terms of cultural terms um, and and, and popular popular narratives, we want to see each other through the same eyes. And there's a there's an assumption that whiteness has that the closer the closer affinity that blackness has to itself to whiteness, the more developed it is. I mean, qu- remarks such as, you speak really well, you're mm. not really like the others, I think are really offensive to people, um, to, to many people, to many African people, to many black people. And that's part of the violence of racism. And also to add to that, it's that we, we, we should also be very clear that when we send our children even to schools, we, we, we pretend and we hope that we're sending our children to a multicultural school or a multiracial school. We're not, Krivani, and to the listeners, we're, children, we're sending our children to monocultural schools for them to become much more aligned to a particular whiteness, to a particular um, pervasive whiteness. And, and that's very problematic as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that, you know, institutions such as the media, I mean, there the are kind of four kinds of racism, if I may. The one is kind of the, the political, the, the politically crude racism like Nazism, like um, right-wing um, fascist organizations that are springing up across Europe, across the U.S., and the kind of urban terrorism that seems to be taking place in the U.S. There's the second, which is you kind of your day-to-day racism um, exhibited by some of our previous callers. There is no racism. Yes. Um, the, the, the idea that it is just a perception that black people have, we have, that we have chips on our shoulders, that we are playing, waving this mystical race card around. The third is that, that is, is probably the most um, insidious, which is ideas, the places of um, social and policy framing, ideas management, media, music. Uh, and, and I think that that's very critical because it is in that place where the violence against particularly black women, if I may, is not, is not recognized. The fact that there are, there's policy neglect, which is extremely racial in nature. Black people, black women, more black women die of cancer globally than white women, not because we have a greater propensity for it, but because we take far longer to look after ourselves. We take far longer to go and get ourselves checked out, whether because of medical costs, whether because we have the stoicism that we carry with us, and and, and diseases which shouldn't kill us um, Mm. do kill us. And this this is the kind of structural violence, even in this country, women who take care of home-based care workers who are looking after the elderly, looking after the sick, looking after people who are living with HIV AIDS, are routinely erased. And they are nameless, they are faceless, even though they are risking their own lives to care for others because of state neglect. Mm. Uh, you know, the, the, incredibly interesting. I want to bring in uh, an SMS sent by Glenn. It's it's not a great SMS. It's, it's actually very saddening to read this, but I'm going to. He says, racism sure. is ingrained in every human being's fiber, except it. The same applies to corruption, rape, murder, violence, abuse. This is no utopia. This is the real world. This talk show will be discussing this topic 50 years from now. Enjoy this struggle how are we how you know where does the work start now or continue to ensure that come 50 years we're not having this discussion okay this is a very bleak outlook from from that um, sms i'm really saddened to hear um those sentiments i understand where that kind of pessimism might come from however we look at 
you know, great leaders like a Nelson Mandela. We look at great leaders in the U.S. like a Martin Luther King or a Malcolm X or Ella Baker um, and so many tremendous freedom fighters who knew that it was our right and it was our duty and currently is our duty to fight back against the, the type of racism, the sexism, the homophobia, xenophobia, and so on. We have to. We cannot sit idly by while these things happen in our communities. We cannot sit idly by while our children are coming up and being raised in this type of environment. And it'd be a real disservice to, to us as, as a human race to, to do so. Mm. And so that's why people um, of conscience all across the world continue to protest, continue mm-hmm. to dissent, continue to struggle to ensure that we have um, a democracy that works for all of us. And, and that is why we launched the Black Lives Matter um, hashtag, the political project, and we're seeing the type of movement in the United States today. We were fed up of the racism. We were fed up of the denialism that um, Leopold just brilliantly articulated. The everyday um, interactions that we were having in the street, but also the manifestations in, in our lives, right? So the, the fact that there is this high unemployment, that is reality. The fact that there is this incarceration, that is reality. The fact that there are all these health disparities, that is the reality. And the truth is, it doesn't have to be so. Hmm. Another world is possible. Absolutely. And that is what we're, what we're championing here. All right. This is a special message to us, our, our, our listeners because because it's such an emotive topic, we allow you the space and the time to say what's on your mind. But a lot of you are getting cut off this morning because you are being disrespective, uh, disrespectful. Uh, we will not tolerate anti-Semitic, anti-African sentiment, anti, anti-race group, cultural group sentiments. So if you're wondering why you're being cut off, then you should con- reconsider the view that you are bringing up on this national radio station. We distance ourselves from those listeners but we also urge you to please understand that this is part of our nation-building initiative. So if you're going to take us perhaps 50 years back, I would prefer not to have you on the show this morning. Opal, uh, America, like South Africa, has come out from a deeply hurtful past uh, where particularly in the last uh, you know, few decades, the dignity of black people was never a consideration uh, for both yours and our countries. But you know, when, when I visit America, when, when we watch movies, when we interact with, with Americans, Americans pride themselves in, in the lessons of Lincoln and the like. So how is it that hundreds of years later you are still dealing with such issues? You know, this is a question that we ask ourselves every single day. Um, and sadly, what it means is that we still have a long way to, to walk, right, a long journey ahead of us. And it means that no victory you know, be it a new law or a new policy, um, makes it such that it erases all of the injustice that's that's happened over the years. So in our case, we have the Civil Rights Act. We have a variety of other enfranchisements of black Americans in the United States um, that has happened. However, because we never dealt with some of the root causes of those injustices, we're still experiencing them today. Mm-hmm. We're still experiencing um, individuals and collective you know, group, groupings of individuals who have tremendous amounts of power who still 
operate with racist ideologies. What we're talking about in the U.S. today, is, and we're using a term called implicit bias, and this really articulates the way in which unconsciously people are dehumanizing you know, the other, right? There's this unconscious dehumanization that's taking place, and people who are doing that are informing our laws, are informing our culture, are informing the way in which our society operates, and that's why we're seeing the types of widespread injustice today. And so I believe that if we sit on our laurels thinking that, oh, a law has passed, that will solve all of our problems, that does us a real tremendous disservice, and those laws can easily be overturned. We're seeing in the United States the pushback and a backlash to all of the gains of the civil rights movement. We're seeing an attack on voter laws. We're seeing an attack on the social safety net for our communities that was enacted in order to provide some modicum of security um, and of access to health services, access to housing, and so on for black communities and other low-income kind of disenfranchised communities over the mm. years. We're seeing attacks on that. And those attacks go back, you know, even to the 80s when this neoconservative uh, Republicans were refashioning the ways that in which they structure their laws um, in a way that seemed more socially acceptable to the, the broader public. And so they were able to gut the social safety net. They were able to then create new laws that essentially criminalize poverty, right? So mm. you have decades and decades and generations of, of, of poor black people who are coming out of, of enslavement, coming out of the Jim Crow era, coming out of all of that. They're low income, and yet you criminalize their poverty. You, you, and you take laws and you make laws that, in, in fact, go exactly after them. And then you see what we have today. Yeah. We, we see the creation of broken windows theory, which Absolutely. is a theory that allows for hyper-policing of low-income mm. communities. And All right. that leads to brutality today. Uh, Kutso Nimtata, good morning. Please be brief. Good morning, and how are you into the listeners? Very good. No, racism will continue to be with humanity. It's as old as Adam and Eve. But it's behoves upon all humanity to rise above that. Secondly, I just want to clear this irony. The black man is not a lazy person. He's not a poor person. Before the coming of the whites to Africa, who was feeding the black man? It's our great-grandfathers. They tilled the land. They raised their animals. When the white man or whoever has come, they say, oh, come on, just stay there. Even they give them the, uh, the, the animals to raise, then you turn around and look mean upon those people and call them lazy people. How many blacks have been taken to the Caribbean, to the Americas, to build that country? Which people worked in the sugarcane plantation? Are they lazy people? Which, sugar, which people are working in, in the sugarcane plantations here in Africa? So black is not enough. It's not a lazy man. Black is a strong person, very welcoming, very lovely. Thank you. Thank you, Kutso in Mtata. Lebohang, 
we we've only scratched the surface when it comes to the discussion of racism in our country as well as other parts of the world and as you've said um, in in previous interactions with me um we haven't found the vocabulary to understand the costs and the dimensions of racism which obviously also includes race-based violence as we come to the conclusion of this very important um discussion how do we then start to move forward? How do we then um, try and, and, and change the tide? We we're coming into a new year. What about our attitudes, our, our perceptions? How do we deal with all of this? I said initially, Kuvani, that it's that for as long as there's privilege attached to race-based typology and and characterization and categorization, it, it it will be very difficult to to remove and to shift discourses. But as Opal says, there's there's a lot of hope. There are different. I mean programs such as this, there's a different consciousness. Um, there, there are people who are claiming back their reality and claiming back an African imagination in different spaces and places when the young people are saying that they need, that roads must fall. They are claiming back an imagination that says we're not going to be tormented by a racist colonial adventurer. We want to be, we want to be in a learning space that is African and that has an African imagination and including an African-based curriculum. And those are sort of some of the kind of the fundamental ways we can begin to re-engineer our imagination and rebuild for kind of um, African people's self-esteem and self-being as well. Mm. Uh, Opal, South Africa is almost, you know, 22 years into our democracy, yet... some of us are still dealing with how to improve relationships and communication with races. Any advice on what we can do differently so decades from now we don't find ourselves in the position that you're in in, in, in the United States at the moment? Well, I actually you know, think that there, there are many, many parallels and, that are taking place even, even now, right? Mm. And so what I, would, what I would suggest that we do is, is look at the traditions of of righteous dissent, of social movements, both in the U.S. and right here in South Africa. Um, I'm considering what happened with Americana miners, right, Um, right here in South Africa. I'm considering what happened with black protesters in Ferguson, Missouri, after the, the murder of Mike Brown, who were standing righteously in the street. They were calling attention to the injustice that had taken place. They were waving the banner you know, saying that black lives matter and calling for international attention um, around black issues and issues that are afflicting the black community, like state violence in, in the U.S., and they were calling for attention, and instead they were met with violence from the state. They were met with tear gas. They were met with pepper spray. They were met with brutality and even to this day, we're experiencing tremendous amounts of surveillance of our movement. So what I consider is for those that are um, willing and, and able and are part of these movements to continue to raise the alarm, to continue to be taken to the streets, to continue fighting for their rights. And I can see that the parallels in the U.S. and, and in South Africa are that young people and working-class people are fed up. They're tired. They don't want to rest on the laurels of what has 
what has happened, what has been done. We're appreciative, we're, we're glad, but it is our duty and it is our generation's um, obligation to continue the fight of our forebears. Mm. And so that's what we're seeing. And so I, I encourage those people of conscience, no matter where they are, if they're in government, if they're educators, if they're you know business owners, to embrace this democratic duty of ours to, to defend and to join us in whatever way they know possible. Wherever you are, I believe that it is your duty to speak up. It is your duty to take action. And now that we have more and more knowledge, more and more access to information, and we're communicating more widely um, and more candidly about the conditions that we are in, I believe that it's time for people to, to respond to that and to take action. And mm. so that is what I believe that, that people can do. And that is some of what I believe is, is you know, the lessons that we can, we can take from both contexts, All right. quite, quite frankly. And we've come to the end of our program. So a, a massive thank you to both our guests, Opal Tometi, um, who is the from the Alliance of of the Black Alliance for Just Immigration, as well as the co-founder of Hashtag Black Lives Matter, as well as socio-political analyst, uh, uh, socio-economic analyst, uh, uh, Lebohang Peko. Always a pleasure chatting to you. Thank you so much for your insight. I'd like to conclude our, our program today uh, with the words of Steve Biko when he says that in time we will be in a position to bestow on South Africa the greatest possible gift, a more human face. For me, Krivani Pele and the entire team, that's where we leave the forum at 8 today.